second day of our three-day adventure to the Holy Land. We are at the Lieben Presidential Suite uh, patio overlooking the old city of Jerusalem here at the Inbal Hotel, the beautiful and incredible Inbal Hotel, always our headquarters in Jerusalem when we uh, show up to do some broadcasting. In this case, we actually are doing our broadcasting from the hotel itself all through this three-day stretch. So we thank the Inbal Hotel profusely for their service and for their hospitality. And, of course, to the Lieben family, who we have inconvenienced much more than anybody ever thought we would, uh, we thank them for their patience and their hospitality. I'm sorry? Could you please leave? (laughs) Barry's quote from today's show, could you please leave? Uh, We have more special guests all through our... (laughs) <laughs> You're leaving. All, uh, many special guests through our show, including the guest sitting to my right. Yossi Klein-Halevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Served as visiting professor of Israel studies at JTS in New York in the fall of 2013. Former contributing editor of the New Republic. I used to um, I used to jump with excitement when an issue of the New Republic would show up at my uh, mailbox. Oh, really? Yeah, that a national review. Try to try to understand That's me. Exactly right. It, it should be that exactly way, right? It should right. be that way. Yeah. Uh, right to the op-ed pages of many leading newspapers, and his latest book is "Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor." In its first week of publication, the book made it to the New York Times bestseller list in the hardcover non-fiction category. Yossi Klein-Halevi, shalom and welcome to JM. Well, thank you. Wonderful to be here, and and I have to tell you, Barry, it's just fantastic to see you after literally 50 years. Yes, and I remember very well our time together in camp. I do too. I was present at the historic moment when you became a Beitari. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you were 15? Yes, I was 15. And we were, that's and it. And I remember telling you, yes, he moved to Israel and become one of the great scholars of the world. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> I do. So I take full credit for his entire career. Barry did say before this broadcast that you knew back then Uh, of how great his intelligence was and how he could do this really, really well. Yes, he was always a brilliant young man. And I don't want to repeat any of the stories that will embarrass him, so I'm not going I to. Feel, I feel like this is my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> just a tribute, just a tribute, not a he, funeral. He was always, I can tell you one thing, yes, he was always outspoken. Had an opinion. And, yeah, and he always had an opinion, and he never kept it to himself. So um, <laughs> I'm not surprised uh, about his career. And it, it's so nice to walk in and see him. Well, it's, it's so mutual, Barry. Yes. I really, I, and I, I always, I always, I just remember having this great love and respect for you. Oh, when, thank when you. We That's very 15. nice. Yeah, and it's very mutual. And I, I followed his career all the time in the newspapers and his books. And it's so nice to see it. It's like old timers' day here. <laughs> I'm waiting for Yogi Berra to come out, but I don't think it's going to happen. He won't be showing up. <laughs> I next. don't think he'll show up today. Um, your your political opinions would likely be the same as your fellow Beitaris or possibly somewhat different? Possibly somewhat different. Uh, It's interesting. My guess as well. (laughs) But you know it's interesting because in in some sense, once a Beitari, always a Beitari. Even if your political opinions change, what Beitar did for for us when we were when we were starting to think about our Jewish identity and our place in, in 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 the Jewish world was give us backbone because we were the eccentrics, the outcasts of, of Jewish life. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that at a time when, you know, we, we've had Likud governments for 40 years now, right. but we, I, I, we were, you were we, the opposition. We were, we were the lunatics. Right. We were the joke, the fringe. And, and to, to join Beitar in the 1960s in America meant that you really didn't care what anybody thought about you. Right. 
because everybody your pet from your parents to your to, nobody could understand what what you were doing there so right. what they either didn't understand or they hated you yeah, it was one of the alternatives. Right. No one said, oh, that's great. That's right. No, no, or remember, we respect look, your opinion. Look, right. we, we were the only, first of all, we were the only ones who didn't have a light blue work shirt or uniform. Or a T-shirt. <laughs> or a T-shirt. Right, right. You come home from summer and you're wearing this dark blue shirt with a light blue tie <laughs> with epaulets and your parents go, what the hell is that? <laughs> say this, this was what we wore yeah. in summer camp. <laughs> right. This is what we wore every Friday night. <laughs> So you, it's you're absolutely right. Yes, you're absolutely right. It, that's a great way to phrase it. Beitar, if nothing else, gave you backbone. And and every one of us is an individual. Mm-hmm. Right. So therefore, and you obviously knew what direction I was going in with my opening question. Right. Something either happened, or certain personalities may have had some influence, or maybe not so drastic an episode occurred that may have shifted your point of view somewhat. Yeah, Mayor Kahana had a big influence on me, but in a negative way. Uh, I graduated eventually from Beitar, like 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 many of us, to JDL, and and I was. Uh, part of of Kahana's world in America and then when he start when he came to Israel and uh, ran for the Knesset for the first time in 1973 I came here as a student and the first thing I did was you know show up in and volunteer for his campaign and then I saw that what the Kahana the Kahana that was emerging here was not the same Kahana that I thought I knew in America. It was, first of all, Soviet Jewry wasn't as interesting anymore. Right. In America, it was right. protecting and diaspora And people don't realize Jews. that he's responsible for putting that issue on the map. That's a separate issue. He's moment. one of those. There, it's, it's a more Does not get the credit he deserves, I think, but okay. It's, it's, nobody, okay. nobody got right. the credit they deserved, right. including Yaakov Birnbaum right. and Glenn Richter. Glenn Richter. Right. You know, really. It wasn't it's, solely Kahana. Oh, no, I'm not saying solely. Yeah. I think sometimes but he's he overlooked great, in that list. He did a great job. Yeah, sometimes I think he's and, overlooked. And so... When, uh, when I came here and, and I saw that what Kahana's direction was to become the, the leader of the farthest right-wing fringe and to really speak more and more, not about love of the Jewish people, but of hatred for others. And, and eventually hatred for Jews with whom he disagreed, even right. calling for the murder of Jews that he disagreed with. And so Kahana became my, my anti-teacher. In, uh, in, in, in the dangers of, uh, of, uh, of extremists. So the quote-unquote American Kahana, in your opinion, was more about Jewish pride, Jewish protection, Jewish activism. Would that be accurate? Yes, with a big but. Because I, I do think today that there is a direct line between the Kahana that we saw in Israel and the Kahana in America. It, it wasn't as... as in, Bolate, we say in Hebrew. How would you say bolate? Um, as uh, as as explicit. Right. Uh, it, there were certain tendencies. Uh, Undercurrents. A, a love of violence. You know, I I, I I always felt that Kahana's motto was or should have been, uh, why solve problems peacefully when you can solve them violently? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, violence is a first resort. I think he really loved violence. Yossi Klein Alevi is here. So you show up to work at his campaign. When does the love affair start to dissipate? Immediately. Immediately. The Yom Kippur War happens right. a few weeks after I, I come to Israel. And the campaign, the, the Knesset campaign is uh, is postponed till December. Right. And right. Kahana, who had been pretty much of a shoe in 
before the war, doesn't get into the Knesset, right. and becomes a very bitter, um, uh, aggrieved man. And, and uh, almost everyone who knew him in America broke eventually broke with him. Do you remember 1985 when he tried to form a Dinati Huda? Do you even remember that was a very small, like, I don't know, yeah. maybe it lasted a couple of weeks, <laughs> an effort to literally take the Eri Huda yeah, and make it separate. Was, look, you know, this is, Kahana never understood the meaning of Jewish sovereignty. He never, he never, and, and this is true for a lot of Jews, that, that you, he didn't understand that the rules are different when you're a sovereign country. Right. Right. And when then, then when you're a, a besieged minority, and he brought that same mentality and tactics from the streets of Brooklyn to uh, to to Israel. So that's why Gandhi, and in this case, I mean Rachavam Zevi. That's why his message worked better because of his Israeli roots. Or you wouldn't say that. Well, he didn't really take you know he, you he never took off politically either. Right. But uh, no, there I, was look, a pla- in, okay, yeah, and and you know I I, <laughs> I Kahana actually sent me. Uh, when when I was working on his campaign, sent me to try to recruit Yisrael Eldad, mm. one of the, uh, the th- one of the three leaders of, of the Lehi. Right. And uh, the first thing that Eldad says to me is, under no circumstances am I going to have anything to do with that lunatic. And this was Eldad, who should, you know. Yeah, who had his own not, lunacy. We're not talking <laughs> about a mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Where were you at the time? And we'll move on to a different topic in a moment. This is how much I want to discuss. But where were you at the time of the Khan assassination? Uh, I was in. Uh, I was visiting France then. <laughs> you were in Europe. I, I heard the news. You were in, in Europe. Europe. You heard the news. Yeah. Funerals took place both in the U.S. and here, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. And the funeral here was a semi-pogrom. Right, I remember that. People, people, f- funeral goers ran around looking for Arabs on the streets. People of to attack. To beat up. Right. Uh, your latest book, ironically enough, after discussing all this, is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Right. Some people in this country find it difficult to interact with Palestinian neighbors. Do you find that? In this country, we're in Israel now. Correct. We're talking about Israel. Correct. Uh, yeah, I find it difficult to, to interact with, uh, with my neighbors, which is why the book is to an imaginary Palestinian. And I wrote this, I live in, and I live in the last, literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem. And I look out onto uh, Palestinian You're right near the 67 villages. border. Say it again? You're right near the 67 border. I'm over it. You're over the 67 border. So, uh, but uh, on the next, literally on the next uh, hill are Palestinian mm-hmm. villages. And separating us is the security barrier, which in Jerusalem is a, is a wall. Right. In the urban areas, it becomes a wall. And so I, I've, I wrote this book to try to explain to... The people that I look at, I look at their their houses every day, and this is a book that attempts to explain who the Jews are and why we came home. Zionism for Palestinians and anyone else who cares to read it. From what sounds like a very positive standpoint, right? From a po- that they should understand the 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 desire or the the Absolutely. positive effect that this had on the Jewish people. Is it Absolutely. a big seller in the Palestinian community? I'm starting to get. To get responses, really? you're getting reactions yeah, from them. I am. I am not all of them negative and genocidals. <laughs> you know, not all of them. <laughs> um, I'm getting some really powerful letters back uh, that are a combination of anger and also saying something has to change, and uh, 
people who really appreciated the, I, letters. I got letters saying this is the first time that anybody ever bothered explaining this to us. One guy, a Jordanian, writes me a five-page letter in English. Most of the letters I get are, are in Arabic, and I have to translate them. But he writes me that, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not Palestinian, but technically I'm also your neighbor. And he's, he ends the letter with, and I'm, I'm quoting word for word, what the hell took you so long to start explaining yourselves to us? And that for me, if you want to sum up why I wrote this book, we, ex- we try to explain ourselves to Congress, to, uh, to European media. public opinion, media. Uh, there's, an, there, there's a pro-Israel organization that opened up an office in China. Nobody has ever tried to explain who we are and what our story is to the Middle East. So there's Hasbara to everybody except our Arab neighbors. Exactly. And so the book has been translated into Arabic. It's available for free downloading. And it's an attempt to present my own very personal um, take on, on our story and, and why, I, why I came here, but more broadly why we came here and why the Palestinian narrative that, that dismisses us as a European colonialist intrusion is missing the, the, the key point about who we are. So I wrote it as a neighbor and without any hopes, big hopes, I, I, you know, I know where I'm living. I, 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 I know, I know what, what, what we're up against. Does any of it seem valid to them, though? Does any of it seem excusable? Is our behavior, and I'll use that term for a moment, of the Israelis uh, and the way they perceive Israeli behavior toward its neighbors excusable based on what you write to them? Look, there's a tremendous amount of anger. You know, you have a generation that's grown up uh, that, that, that has known nothing but, uh, but military checkpoints and control. And so I explained to them in this book how I, who in principle supported two-state solution, right. how I live with the wall and, and I, there's a checkpoint just right. past the wall. It's right, right outside my window. Mm-hmm. How do I live with that view? How do I tolerate it? And so I, I explain what, what most Israelis take for granted, which is we repeatedly tried to make peace. And what we got back was the worst wave of terrorism in our history. And that's a story that most Palestinians don't know. And what I write in my book is I'm, I'm not trying to convince you that my narrative is right. But I want you to understand that, that there is another narrative here. There's another story that you're not getting in your media, in your schools, in your mosques. And that's the story of your neighbors. And so I'm offering this to you as a... Um, as a way of, as a window into into understanding us. Just as right. I'm looking out right. at you and your hill, you're looking at me, at my hill. You're looking at French Hill every day. Yassi Klein Alevi is here. Would you agree then, and you alluded to this a moment ago with the wave of terror after all these peace attempts, would you agree that in the Gaza Strip, for instance, that it, before the disengagement, obviously, uh, that in, the, uh, in certain areas of the quote-unquote West Bank, um, even in Palestinian slash Jewish neighborhoods or you know entities that are near each other, that before Oslo, before all these public attempts to create some type of peaceful solution that would end up in what you describe as a two-state solution, there was much more peaceful coexistence between Arabs and Jews. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, I, I need to qualify that statement because I'm not a, a, an advocate of annexation. I think that, that my starting point is not my end point. My starting point is Barry's starting point. Kula Shali. It's all mine. Of course it's all mine. It's more, Judea and Samaria is more mine than Ashdod and Ashkelon, which, were, which was Eretz Plishtim. So, so that's, for me, that's not an argument. And what I say in the book is that if there ever is going to be real, real talks, real peace talks with our neighbors, which we haven't had until now, the starting point has to be right wing. The starting point is you sit down at the table, you're facing Palestinian negotiators who say without any apology, it's all mine. I'm giving up 79% of, of historic Palestine for a West Bank Gaza state, right? That's what they say. Right. So I want my negotiators to say the same thing. It's all mine. But as we say in Hebrew, malasot, what can you do? There's another people sitting in this land. I don't want to rule them forever. It, I, and I certainly don't want them in the Knesset. I don't want 40-plus percent of the Israeli population to be Palestinian. This will not be a governable country. And so, Belet Berera, without, with, with no alternative, I'm ready to cut what belongs, what, what, I'm ready to amputate part of my body, because that's what this is. And what the big mistake that the Israeli left has made is saying it's not ours. So it's not yours. What you're not giving? You're not giving right. up anything. What do you negotiate? You're just giving. You know, you're 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 just giving back something that belongs to them. That's not my position. Um, wouldn't it be unfair though? You just said there was no real peace negotiation. Wouldn't that be unfair to you know Prime Minister Shamir who went to Madrid in 1988 and Oslo of the early 90s and the White House lawn of September 1993? Look, wouldn't it be unfair the Rabin Arafat handshake under Clinton's uh, tutelage? Wouldn't that be unfair to say there's been no real attempt when, when to us it seems right from this side of the perspective that we really have made an effort to get to the table and I was start talking, talking. I was talking to someone who uh, has been uh, at the table for all most of those negotiations. Initials, please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just just the other day, and yeah. he and and he said to me the I line. I have a feeling I know who this he is. He said okay. to me. He said to me the line that summed up the whole thing. Yeah. He said we were negotiating peace, and they were negotiating decolonialization. Right. Now, if one side thinks we're make we we thought we're negotiating peace because we're not colonialists. We have a claim here. You have a claim. We have a claim. Let's try to make peace. But if the other side says, no, no, you don't have a claim. Only we have a claim. And we're just here to negotiate how to turn this into post-apartheid South Africa. Look, Ar what did mm -hmm. Arafat used to say? Arafat always used to say, I'm waiting for my de Klerk. Mm -hmm. What did de Klerk do? Mm -hmm. He dismantled the country. South Africa. Right. That's what Arafat was looking for. Right. And, and, so, and he almost had it. <laughs> And, he and almost had it, Nehud Barak. He, he almost had it. He, well, Barak made the offer. Well, exactly. Arafat himself blew it. So, you know, so look, my, my, my position is, I would say, the position of 60% of Israelis, which is if there was a chance for a real deal, if we had a real partner, then I would be willing with all the pain 
to to make those concessions right. for a real peace that's le- that brings us legitimacy. You want me to... But we're not there. Right. So it's all theoretical. Understood. And in the, in in the absence of a chance for peace, I want to start having conversations with Palestinians. Right. Understood. From the ground up, so to speak. From the ground up. Um, should I guess on the air or off the air who that person was from the uh, negotiations? We'll do off, off the air. We'll do it off, off. the air. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have actually two people in mind. We'll see if I'm right. Um, and, and you alluded earlier. You mentioned the 1978 change. In Israeli government. 77? 77 would be more accurate. 1977 changed in Israeli government. All right, Barry, where were you in 1977? 1977? I can't remember where I was. Begin, Begin wins. <laughs> where are you? Oh, in New York. You were in New York and Begin won? celebrating like a lunatic. Correct. <laughs> I mean, that was one of that the most political blunders. That was unbelievable. That was a that was Rabin's political blunder, basically, right? In in terms of the third party being formed. When Rabin was prime minister the first time. Correct. And, yeah. then, and then he... I don't know. Well, you know, you know, after after 29 years and right. and 20 years before that, right. it was time it was for a democratic right. change. Understood, but it also. Ha- <laughs> I'm, but I'm, all I'm saying is it happened because of strange circumstances. Yeah. It's not yeah. like it happened because the yeah. electorate, you know, all of a sudden, you know, went went, went to one side over another. Well, it's it's the it mis- was, it, there was the revolt of the Mizrahim right. of the next generation. There was the belated response to the Yom Kippur War. Right. There was the corruption and labor. And there was the fact that it was time for, uh, you know. Would any of this be different if uh, Lee couldn't have moved into prominently the, you know, the most important position for the last 40 years? Would any of this be different? Yeah. Let's say we would have a labor, labor government. Like, you know, my, my, my um, scenario for, for how, how an eventual peace agreement will happen, if there's ever going to be one, if there'll ever be a chance, it's only going to come from the right. Right. It's going to be a pragmatic right-winger who will say, uh, it's ours, but I have to save the state of Israel. And if saving the state of Israel means giving up parts of the land of Israel, then I have to do that. How many books have you written? Four. And if one would uh, pick up one of them, which would be the one you'd recommend? Well, the latest one will is uh, is 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 the shortest. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's an incentive. <laughs> That's an incentive right there. <laughs> I pick up the shortest. Uh, like Dreamers, the one before that was the longest. You know, you know your like <laughs> Dreamers book, just based on the title, Israeli paratroopers reunite Jerusalem, divide a nation. It is interesting to me that paratroopers are viewed completely as a separate entity when it comes to. Uh, the military, when it comes right. to, you know... They used to be. The truth is that they've lost a lot of their stature. But in 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 1967, it was the paratroopers and the rest of the army. They're the Marines of Israel, basically, yeah. in yeah. terms of but the way not, the public but, views but them. Not but not anymore. anymore. No, Golani right, is, uh, you that. know, there's a big competition between Golani oh. and, and Sanchanim. And, yeah. and in that book focuses on their role... In the war, right? That 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 they essentially what won the war yeah. or no? Well, well, the book really is 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 an attempt to tell the story of the fifty year debate between the Israeli left and the right through seven paratroopers who fought in Jerusalem, uh-huh. and so I chose four kibbutzniks and three future settlers. Right. So not necessarily obviously from the same war, the same era. Obviously, but we're talking about different times. No, no, no. But these were seven people who fought in Jerusalem right. together, Correct. and they were friends. And then they became political enemies, but they stayed friends. So they did fight in the same way. Oh, yeah. They fought in Jerusalem in 67. They crossed the canal together in 73. And they were in Lebanon together in 82. The same guys. And so the book is really an attempt to tell a history of Israel in a way that's not a history book, but is a, is a story 
of these seven amazing guys. Are there seven different political opinions? Every one of them is different, including that the settlers argue among themselves and the left-wingers argue among themselves. It's, it's, so you really see the, the nuance in, in this argument. And, and you know one of the things that really troubles me when I go back to America to, to speak and I speak to groups is how much of the Israeli nuance gets lost abroad. And abroad, you're either, you know, uh, Hebron now and forever, or peace now, or further left. And here, a majority of Israelis, I would consider centrist, which means they're hawkish, they're, they're unapologetic about the land of Israel belonging to us, but under certain circumstances, they're ready to make a deal. And, and that's a majority of this country. When I go to the States, I don't find those people, at least not, they're not organized. And, and you know, and, and I, I'm, I, I find that I go into a time warp when I go to American Jewry. When I speak in Orthodox and right-wing communities, they're behind the times. it's the 1980s, right. you know, and Begin or Shamir are still prime minister, and the first intifada hasn't happened yet, and no problem, we can absorb, you know, three million Palestinians, five, no problem. And then when I go speak in, in, in liberal Jewish communities, it's the 90s, it's the Oslo years, and the second intifada hasn't happened, as if we didn't try to, to, to create a Palestinian state and as if it didn't blow up in our faces. And, and so most Israelis, are, are, or a majority of Israelis, are not in the 80s and not in the 90s anymore. We're living after the first intifada, which showed us the limits of, of, of Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, and we're after the second intifada, which showed us the limits of peace now. And, and in America, it's still a debate between Eretz Yisrael HaShlema and peace now. Brilliant analysis. So. Brilliant analysis. Well, I mentioned to you earlier that I would... Uh, it just happens to be wrong, Big car training. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned to you earlier... But I want to say something. Actually, there's something else about the Beitar training, which is exactly oh. right. And, and that is, what I learned in Beitar is no illusions. You face the reality of the Jewish people as it is. The greatness of Jabotinsky was that everyone else was living in illusions. Right. And Jabotinsky said, es brent a fire. So it's burning, right. it's coming. And everybody laughed at him or called him a fascist. And, and, and what, what, what we learned in Beitar is whatever the reality is, as difficult as it is, you face it. And what troubles me today about the ideological left and right is that they are selective in, their, in, in how they face reality. The left wants to pretend that we can make peace with a Palestinian national movement that doesn't accept our, our right to exist the only conflict in the world where one side has to has to negotiate its its right to exist that's not a starting point that's the end point that's what we get at the end of the negotiations you know and the other side of it the right uh, is denying is denying the, what what it means to be to be ruling over a civilian population that doesn't want us and that we don't want as part of our society right. and both sides are living in a kind of illusion where ideology uh, is, 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 is trumping reality. I've had a lot of on-air conversations. This has been one of my favorites. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Yossi Klein so Halevi, a real I'm honor. Really a a real honor. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Continue your amazing work. More coming up. You're, we're in Jerusalem and you're listening to JM in the AM.